Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm joined today by Dr. Fiona Hill, the Robert Bosch Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution Center on the United States and Europe. Before that, Dr. Hill served as the Senior Director for Europe and Russian Affairs at the National Security Council from 2017 to 2019. She was a National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia at the National Intelligence Council, which is a big research job for the intelligence community. She's the top Russia expert on the National Intelligence Council, has done extensive research and writing on topics related to Russia, the Caucasus, Central Asia, regional conflicts, energy, and strategic issues. Dr. Hill's new book, There Is Nothing For You Here, Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century, chronicles Dr. Hill's personal journey and recommendations to save American democracy. Dr. Hill, thanks for joining Building the Future with Dan Rundy, and thank you again for being with us. Thanks for having me. It's always great to do something with you and to CSIS, my close neighbor, and obviously a place I really admire too. This is a really intensely personal book at one level, but one of the levels is it's a raw, compelling chronicle of your life, your background, and how it's impacted how you see the world. I found it really honest and personal, and it gave me deep empathy and sympathy for you as a human being. I identified as a human being. At one level, I could identify at another level. I couldn't, but I felt that it drew out a lot of personal empathy for me. I don't know how to describe it because it was so personal. Yeah, I took away that we're all just human beings with imperfections and flaws and challenges. So with that in mind, could you talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you got into the field that you're in? Yeah, I mean, where I grew up, as I learned later, but of course I didn't know it at the time because, you know, you're growing up in your own context. You don't really kind of think about how it's emblematic of, you know, larger things. I discovered as I moved on in life and moved out of my hometown that it was the same as towns, not just all over the United Kingdom. I grew up in the northeast of England, but you know, similar to places in Russia when I got there as a student, and also very similar to lots of places in the United States, and probably say for Europe as well as a whole. So my town was an old coal mining town. The town itself is actually fairly ancient. It kind of goes back to early settlements preceding the Romans. The Romans built a fort there. It's actually the outer rim of the Roman Empire, which is kind of bizarre to think of, you know, because we're so far away from Italy. And when the Romans sent the legionnaires out there, they had to walk. <laughs> And we think that on the way, they uh, must have invented that horrible British habit of having sandals with socks inside of them that you see on kind of British people in beaches back in the day because the Romans got there and their sandals found it was a bit cold <laughs> up there in the north. So it's the north of England. It's got a storied history, but it was a large centre for coal mining, steelworks, big factories, railway works. It was a blue-collar working-class area, smokestack industries. And as I was uh, growing up, everything was closing down. So I was born in the mid-1960s, 1965. My dad by this point, had already worked through multiple coal mines as a coal miner that had closed down, same as his brother, his father, all of his uncles, his great uncles, his grandfather, his great grandfather, everybody was a coal miner. And then that was it. The mines went, the jobs went. 
My dad tried his hand in a steelworks and in a brickworks. They all closed as well. And eventually he becomes an orderly, a porter or an auxiliary worker in the local hospital. My mother there is a midwife and so they meet. And my mum's in that first crop of midwives that you see on BBC America from kind of Call the Midwife, the first crop of midwives trained under the National Health Service after World War II. And I grew up in this town just a short walk away from the local hospital. But everything's going. And by the time I graduate high school in 1984, there's pretty much no work in the town apart from in the hospital or in the bars, the pubs, you know, around and some of the kind of very dwindling retail establishments where people had no money. So even the shops are all closing down. It was a pretty grim time. And the title of the book is taken from something that my dad said to me one night as we were kind of walking back. I had a job in a pub. My dad was working in the hospital and he came to pick me up. So kind of was pretty rough. You know, <laughs> When you came out of the pubs at night, people had been drinking heavily and usually ending up in the hospital. My dad would walk home with me and I was going to apply to university at their encouragement. And my dad said, but you know, there's nothing for you here, Pet. If you go to university and you're looking for a job, don't come back. You've got to go somewhere else because there's no work. And if you want to make something, it'll have to be somewhere else. I mean, it's a pretty sad state of affairs to have that kind of conversation with your dad on the way home late at night. And you know, of course, that always stuck with me. And my dad was right. You know, I went on to a university. I was paid for by my local education authority because in the 1960s, 70s and 80s, there was an expansion of education away from a rather selective elite approach to try to bring in more kids from different backgrounds. But it was still very unusual for anyone in the UK to go to university at that point. It was only five or six percent of the population went to something that wasn't a vocational or training programme or straight into work after leaving school. And the local government, County Durham, paid for my education. Very similar in the United States to sort of Pell Grants and subsidies through the GI Bill after World War II. And it was that experience of going to university. I went to St Andrews in Scotland and then I get a scholarship to go to study in the Soviet Union in 1987, 1988. And from there I get a scholarship to come to Harvard and the United States that I start to see that I'm actually a living data point, that my family are experiencing all the things that I'm studying at university. And it's not for me abstract. This is it. This is my life. We're studying in history, the economic and social history, the right kind of rise and fall, not just the British Empire, but of British industry. I go to the university against the backdrop of the miners' strike in 1984 in the United Kingdom, which was the biggest industrial action since a general strike in 1926, kind of was triggering off the depression or right in the middle of all of that. And it was really one of these tumultuous times. Britain was being ripped apart by the troubles in Ireland, in Northern Ireland, the conflict between Catholic and Protestant Irish in Northern Ireland and between those who wanted to be part of an independent Ireland or part of Great Britain. The United Kingdom. There was the rise of racial violence because there'd been more immigration into Britain after World War II, and especially in the 60s and 70s in the big cities, not in my hometown, which was pretty much all white and working class. And we were watching what seemed to be the country on fire. And then I get to the Soviet Union as a student and I see, hey, wow, look at this place. This is supposed to be the superpower. I've decided to learn Russian because it's the war scare between the United States and the Soviet Union struggles and confrontation over the stationing immediate nuclear missiles in Europe, SS-20 and Pershing missiles by the Soviet Union and the United States. Everyone is convinced that we're going to die in a nuclear conflagration. I talk about this in the book, about my whole teenage years as shaped from 1977 to 1987, when I actually end up as a student in Moscow, by this Euro-missile crisis. And the certainty the near certain feeling that we are going to end up in nuclear Armageddon. And I get to the Soviet Union just as Gorbachev and Reagan signed the INF Treaty, ending this period of confrontation and find that the Soviet Union's falling apart. And it's like my home area on steroids. It's just a bigger version of the blue collar working class northeast of England with all of the industry, the whole economy in disarray. 
I love the book. The stories are really powerful. I really recommend people go out and read Dr. Hill's new book. There is nothing for you here. Finding opportunity in the 21st century. So the book, there is nothing for you here. Finding opportunity in the 21st century. Why did you write this book, Dr. Hill? I felt for a long time that I could explain a lot of the things that were happening in politics, not just in Russia, which has, of course, been my area of study. And I've been basically tracing in personal terms the history of Russia from 1984 onwards when I started to study Russian against the backdrop of the war scare, but then going there as a student and all the kind of research there. But this experience of growing up in an unusual place in the United Kingdom for someone who ends up in national security gave me obviously a very different perspective. I didn't go to Oxford or Cambridge. I didn't live in London. I didn't live in a big city. My family weren't prosperous or you know, intellectual. I kind of learned everything from scratch and it was kind of a practical experience. And in the United States, when I came over in 1989, of course, I've got a scholarship to Harvard, which is you know, an incredible privilege and it's sort of an amazing opportunity for me. But Boston is in trouble in that period in 1989. It's basically the end of the busing, the attempt to desegregate the public schools, which hasn't worked at all because white Bostonians fled from the inner city out to the suburbs. The schools flipped from being white and black to almost predominantly black. There's been a lot of racial tension there that I hadn't anticipated. And then there's all this deindustrialization around Harvard Yard itself and East Cambridge and Somerville and Medford and all these towns that were once extremely prosperous in Massachusetts and then been in the throes of decline for some period. Obviously, Massachusetts bounces back kind of sometime in the future, but not then when I first arrived. And so fast forward with all of this swirling around me and paying a lot of attention to it, I end up in 2016 watching the unfolding of this really vitriolic, contentious presidential campaign in the United States. The Russians have interfered in it. We've got this massive polarisation of politics and it all starts to kind of come together for me, for sure, because Britain has the UK referendum on leaving the European Union, Brexit, they all become part of the same phenomenon. You've had in Russia, Vladimir Putin, who's emerged as a strongman leader at the end of a period of chaos after the collapse of the Soviet Union, similar unemployment and socioeconomic crisis. He's Mr. Fix-It. He's going to put everything back in its place. He's gone from a strongman leader to an authoritarian leader. And we seem to be on the same kind of path with Trump emerging as a figure playing on divisions, but promising to put America first, put America right again, fix all of the problems. It's, you know, part of the same general populist approach to politics. I get asked to go into the administration to deal with the Russia problem because the Russians have interfered. There's all of this focus on what can we do to push back against what the Russians have done. This is like straight out of the Cold War, but an influence operation that's so much more successful because of social media. I want to put my other experience back into use again. You'd mentioned at the beginning I'd been the National Intelligence Officer. I mean, I knew all of this stuff. A lot of people that I knew from the time I was a National Intelligence Officer behind the scenes, I want to go do something. I come out of all of this deeply concerned more about the domestic front because the Russians are exploiting our divisions, our polarizations. They're not inventing anything apart from personas on the internet and obviously their propaganda campaign, but they're feeding on problems in the United States and elsewhere. And then I end up testifying at the first impeachment trial of Donald Trump. And I and all the other fact witnesses get attacked for our credibility. They attack our motivations for why we're testifying when, you know, we were subpoenaed and we're doing our duty. We've taken an oath to the country to serve the constitution and we're engaged in public service. I'm an immigrant like Lieutenant Colonel Vindman and Maria Yovanovitch, our former ambassador to Ukraine. You know, we've all taken oaths of citizenship and here we are being impugned and our motives cast into a dark light. And that makes me, by the time we come to the public testimony, want to set the record straight before I even begin. And so I basically opened my testimony with something I've never done before in any professional setting, talking about myself. 
why I'm here, who I am, what my background is, the fact that my family's always wanted to emigrate to America because America was a beacon of hope and truth and opportunity. And here I am in this bizarre situation where we're impeaching a president or there's a trial to impeach a president for impropriety in national security, the attempts to privatise foreign policy. This is only the first of two impeachment trials. And I come away from this experience deeply worried about the fate of America. I get letters from all the way across the country, all states pretty much, people from all kinds of backgrounds saying that the personal story resonated. And I start to think, well, maybe I can use the personal story and elaborate on it to tell a bigger story as a historian, because I'm trained as a historian, about how we got to this place. And then being a public policy girl, you can't take the girl very far out of Brookings or CSIS, right? Dad, I mean, it's the same thing, right? Where people are kind of casting aspersions on us policy wonks, but that's what we do, public policy. How do we get out of this, you know? So I try to weave these three things all together. The larger historical meta-narrative of deindustrialization, loss of opportunity, populism, which gives us Trump and Brexit and Vladimir Putin and a whole other things, using biography, my the memoir, as a vehicle. And then weaving in the public policy, because that's actually what my day job is. <laughs> Dr. L, I think the book is really successful. I want people to go out and buy There's Nothing for You Here, Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century by Dr. Fiona Hill. It's a great book. I, I found it really raw and compelling. And I think some of your personal stories are particularly shocking to me. Maybe I'm a little bit naive and maybe I've spent too much time in the library. Some of these stories, Dr. Hill, are really tough. So I'm just going to list several of them that really shocked me profoundly. One was you were at St. Andrews. You're on a scholarship. You'd also gotten a scholarship from the former Coal Miners Association. The Durham Miners Association, yes. And so it was almost like your community was like putting you forward and supporting you to do this. And it was not really sort of a super egalitarian place totally, or it was sort of transitional. At that point, it's the transitional period, exactly. It's the transitional period. And so you get the best grade in a French class. And I just was really upset. Some other student would confront you and question how you got the best grade in the French class. I'd operate as if you got the best grade in the French class because you worked hard and did your thing. And this person sort of impugned your motives and asked, and you'll have to go read the book, but I just couldn't believe that someone would do that. I was shocked. I mean, I think for many people hearing this from different backgrounds, they'll have experienced the same thing as well, because we do tend to have in elite educational institutions, a kind of expectation of the backgrounds of where people have come from. I think in the United States, immediately after World War II, when there was the GI Bill and the opening up through Pell Grants, you did get people from all kinds of backgrounds being able to go to universities. But the Ivy Leagues in the United States, just like the equivalents in the United Kingdom, which St Andrews was considered part of, after Oxford and Cambridge, St Andrews was the oldest university in Great Britain, oldest in Scotland, and tended to be for you know many people the idea that if you didn't get into Oxford and Cambridge, you go to St Andrews or one of the other universities like Durham from my home area. And I'd actually been advised not to go to Durham University by some of my school teachers because it wasn't, let's just say, very friendly and welcoming to locals. And even today, in County Durham, only about under 10% of students at Durham University are from the locality private schools tended to funnel students towards. So the point when I was there, there were very few kids from working class England. There were more from Scotland because Scottish university students would also get a completely free education. For kids in Scotland, education was free. And so there were kids funneled in from similar backgrounds in Scotland. But from England, there were very, very few. And I say in the book that kind of knew all of them, (laughs) a handful of us. And there was just shock that we were doing well because it was sort of an expectation. 
that we'd come from these under-resourced schools, some cases schools that had once been vocational schools, which was the case of my school. It had been more geared toward, at one point, funneling kids towards local factories and mechanical or engineering, not into academia. And so there was just this shock that I'd done well. I spent a lot of time in the library because I felt that my whole earlier education had been wasted because I got into these early classes and thought, what? What are people talking about? And I'd actually been encouraged by my school headmaster to try the Oxford entrance exam. Back in the 1980s, there was an exam to enter Oxford. It got phased out over time because people realised it was grossly unfair because a lot of people spent a whole year preparing for this exam. People like me from these poor schools had no idea. And when I saw that exam, I didn't even know how to answer any of the questions. But, I, you know, obviously I didn't pass the exam, but I did get invited to an interview at Oxford. And again, no one gave us any kind of coaching on what to expect. Coaching. Everything was all kind of geared for someone else from somewhere else. That's something that I lay out in the book. It's the importance of realising that not everyone's prepared for these kinds of institutions. It's not their fault. It's the early kind of part of the education, but they haven't got what people call cultural capital. They're not in the know. And so for this incident at St Andrews that you were relating, the person who accused me of something improper knew I didn't have the cultural capital, couldn't understand how I could possibly have excelled in the class because the expectation was, oh, this was all dumbing down the university to let these people in from the lower classes and they weren't expected to do well. In fact, our own schools didn't expect us to do well. Sometimes our own families didn't. And the relevance of all of this is that here in the United States right now, having some kind of further or higher education is now the marker of class and how you will vote, and often where you will live and the kind of jobs that you're doing. I mean, when we look to the future, a lot of people don't really have a very promising future. They don't have a lot of opportunity because they don't have the further education doors open for them. And it might be that their own families are saying, that's not for you, there's nothing for you here in education. When there's everything for everyone there in education, all forms of education. It doesn't have to go to an Ivy League school. You don't have to go to Yale or St Andrews or any of these elite establishments. State schools, living where I do in Maryland, I mean, obviously, University of Maryland is a fantastic educational institution, but so is Montgomery College. And so some of the other local facilities enable people to get skills and to kind of re-qualify for jobs in this new information and knowledge economy. And that's all we have to do. We have to be a public-private approach. Just like I got money from the Durham Miners Association, I got money from the local Rotary Club. The problem is, of course, their investment in me didn't come back to the community. I went on somewhere else and, you know, really far away to the United States. And so we have to kind of figure out how our community institutions get people equipped for jobs in the private sector as well as in the public service and elsewhere, and bring that knowledge back to help revitalise our communities. That was another part of the book. I kind of end up the book basically saying there shouldn't be any more forgotten places and forgotten people. People shouldn't have to move away from their communities. If they move away from education, they can come back again and be able to do something on the community level in public service. So many different opportunities for people to bring something back and everyone should have access to some kind of education. You make several recommendations at the end of the book, which you described to strengthen American democracy. Talk about a couple more of those. Democracy only works if everyone participates in it, right? And it's not just the act of going out and voting, but being an informed voter of knowing who you're voting for, being able to kind of assess what they're going to bring to the table. We could also get involved in local politics, even without being partisan and a member of a political party. You can register to help out at polling booths or kind of help out in all kinds of different ways with local community efforts. Run for the school board. There's a possibility to be these as independent candidates. You don't have to be forced into these boxes of red or blue Democrat or Republican here. But a lot of that kind of comes down to education, of being having the knowledge and having information. 
Part of the problem that we have right now with disinformation and problems with the algorithms from Facebook that we've been hearing so much about with the whistleblower testimony Francis Hogan on Capitol Hill, it's not so much the content, as she says, but the algorithm. But I think the content is really important as well because people need to know what they're reading, what they're posting on, what they're forwarding to colleagues, how to discern the information that they're getting. And that comes through knowledge and through learning. I was self-taught. My father was very much self-taught because he left school at 14, but he was reading everything all of the time. He didn't think that reading was beyond him because he was a coal miner because no one had encouraged him to stay in school. There were uh, reading circles for miners that the Durham Miners Association sponsored. It wasn't all about industrial action and strikes over better pay and working conditions. There was what was called miners' welfare clubs. And welfare doesn't mean the connotations we have in the United States. It meant well-being, kind of giving people an opportunity for further education. Britain used to have a whole network of further education colleges for working men mostly, but also for working women, where people could actually, if they wanted to learn about Roman history, they could go and take a course on ancient Rome, for example. You know, colleges in London, but they also existed to some degree in the North. And often they were run by local libraries or local charitable organisations. In the case of my dad, they were run by the Methodist Church and the Quakers. My dad would go along to these reading circles, like big giant book clubs. And there were also artist colonies and some really famous artists emerged out of this. People like George Orwell were part of some of these groups. Very famous stories about Orwell, what he writes about the miners, the road to Wigan Pier, for example. I mean, people think of Orwell with Animal Farm and 1984, but mm-hmm. Orwell was, you know, really focused in on social change and the whole way that communities could acquire knowledge. There's a lot of these ideas and lessons from other settings that could be brought back to the United States. I mean, I'm thinking long and hard again about revitalization of libraries. It's been very difficult during COVID, obviously, with libraries closed down, but libraries, public libraries, play a really important part in our democracy. People can go in and get information. It's in an objective fashion. They can figure out access to all kinds of knowledge. They get assistance also with writing resumes. There's all kinds of public service efforts centered around libraries. And Andrew Carnegie, of course, another of our neighbours in the Carnegie Corporation, the Carnegie Endowment, for example, he basically made this huge bequest for libraries all the way across country because he understood the power of libraries, the power of knowledge, the power of education and what role that would play in revitalising our democracy. I mean, our democracy will only be repaired if we're all part of that repair effort, not just waiting for the guys at the top to get their act together. Because part of the problem that we have right now is members of Congress perpetrating lies about the election, the state of our democracy democracy on an electoral system and really being very much focused on their own personal power and staying in their positions and not really thinking about this kind of larger social fabric that goes into making our democracy work across the country. One of the things that strikes me throughout the book, Dr. Hill, as a guy is the challenges of you being a professional woman in foreign affairs starting from growing up in your town and then all the way to being at a CEO conference and having a co-CEO mistake you for one of the folks there. What advice do you have for young women getting started in either foreign affairs or getting started professionally? What advice do you have throughout the book? And it's tough to read, but I don't think your story is unique. No, not at all. I mean, there's a lot of stories about this out there. And I dialed back some of the things I was going to put in there because I didn't want to end up in the middle of this sort of me too kind of debate because there's more to the difficulties of being a woman 
you know, just simply sexual harassment, because there's all kinds of levels of discrimination that you're alluding to here that, you know, I experienced throughout my childhood and career. At first, there was a lot of harassment as a girl growing up in the North, but I didn't think that that would be a pattern that I'd experienced throughout my whole life. I was more focused on class and the discrimination against me as a part of the working class where I came from. The town was, you know, blue collar. There was always that expectation you weren't going to get ahead. Girls, women found it much more difficult because there were certain professions that weren't open to you and it was hard to see role models. I mean, Margaret Thatcher was obviously there as the pinnacle of politics, but there wasn't really a, a pathway up. She was kind of the exception. And when I came to the United States, I was really kind of shocked about the sort of insidious sexism that was grafted into many of the positions. I talk a lot in the book about women's pay and the women's pay differential, which also works on race and other levels as well in the United States. And when I'd had jobs back in the UK, the wages had been transparent because, you know, I was working in restaurants, I was cleaning in a hospital, basic straightforward blue collar jobs, but the pay was listed and it was transparent and, you know, there was no point in bargaining. I didn't realise until I got to the US that there were differentials. And I talk in the book about how I found out pretty early on in my career and I was warned by other older women. The overall message is women need to help out other women and create networks and bring others along, particularly those who were younger than them, women from all backgrounds, kind of push for recognition of how difficult it is, you know, for women who are from blue collar working class, black women, women from other disadvantaged minority groups. There are barriers that are built into the system that make it difficult to, to get ahead. And the pay differential, right off the bat, I discovered that I was being paid less than men in comparable positions. And it was only really when, in 2009, Lily Ledbetter, the manager from the Alabama Tire Factory, basically took her case of unequal pay to the courts. And then eventually has a bill named after in Congress that President Obama signs in in his first days in office that really kind of people started to focus on this and to change their perspectives. And I found all the way through my career, every single job I'd got to up until then, there was some discrepancy. I say in the book that at one point I calculated that all of this cumulated wage discrepancy amounted to $500,000. I mean, that's an enormous amount of money. And it's over a 20-year period, but still. And then I started to think, okay, I'm a professional woman. What if you were a single mother? When you read the Harvard Business Review and all kinds of research on this, you found that that's kind of the standard a $20,000 discrepancy. And if you're a single mother, you're the breadwinner because there's all these arguments that only men are the breadwinner. Well, most single family homes in the United States are headed by a woman and the vast majority are also black women. So just kind of imagine that impact that that has on families. So it's a larger issue. It's, a, it's a, an issue that people should be paying attention to overall because it's setting back entire groups and generations of people in the United States, kids of any gender, because their mothers are being grossly underpaid. And so I extrapolated, obviously, from my own experience to a kind of a larger issue, one of which I was acutely aware because members of my own family are single mothers. This is something that obviously is, is very painful for people when they can't provide for their families. So let me shift gears. I want to talk about Russia. You're a Russia expert. You've studied Russia for a long time. Talk about how important is Russia on the global stage? How big of a threat is Russia? Russia absolutely interfered in the 2016 election. What did they do? Well, in the 2016 election, I mean, this really ties to everything else that you've kind of laid out in this question. The Russian security services had pretty sophisticated influence operation, basically to discredit US democracy, to cast aspersions on the integrity of our election and to put a cloud over whoever became the president out of that election. Well, they certainly succeeded with that. Now, why, of course, did they do this? Because the United States, for 
decades has been the standard bearer, the gold star elections. We've been pretty quick <laughs> with all of our election programming internationally to call out other countries for not adhering to free and fair election standards and basically calling them out on the conduct of elections, especially in places like Russia, where 2011-2012, when Vladimir Putin wanted to return to the presidency, he got called out by the United States and by Secretary of State at the time, Hillary Clinton, for the conduct of the elections and for just this sort of decision to return to the presidency. And Putin was pretty angry about that. He felt that actually Secretary Clinton in particular, but the United States in general, had tried to mess with his election and his return to the presidency. And so one could say there was an element of vengeance there in the intervention. It's also, of course, that the Soviet Union still saw itself in that Soviet Union-United States superpower standoff as the successor state to the Soviet Union after the collapse. The United States is still the main opponent. Russia still sees itself in a struggle for dominance with us in Europe and elsewhere, which of course we don't see. But the United States is Russia's preferred sparring partner. It's useful for mobilization internally. I recently wrote a piece in Foreign Affairs, you know, trying to kind of lay that out about while we're still in the Russian crosshairs. And although Russia is not the challenge to the United States that China is in terms of a systemic economic challenge, of course, Russia remains a nuclear superpower, the other nuclear superpower. And so we can't, even though I think we would generally like to, ignore Russia. We kind of hope that Russia could be just left behind somewhere. We could uh, move on and sort of get on with our international lives. We certainly didn't want to have the Russians messing about in our domestic politics, but that's what we got in 2016. So Russia remains an active player, one by choice in foreign policy framework with us, but also instead of our politics. Because after 2016, that intervention, Russia became part of our domestic politics. It chose to be, but it actually very much became one. We were all fighting about what the Russians did or didn't do in 2016. What are the chances we'll see in our lifetimes? I think we're young enough. I'm thinking like 20 to 30 years out. Could you imagine a more functional democracy? Could you imagine Russia becoming a normal country at some point? Well, we hoped that they would in the 1990s, but what brought things down in Russia, the democratic experiment there was socioeconomic failure, which actually is a lesson to us as well. I mean, democracy has to deliver. For most Russians in the 1990s, the socioeconomic crises were conflated with democratization. They, you know, kind of had a, an expression for it. Instead of democratization, as it would have been, it was dermocratization, which meant shitocracy. Not a great kind of image. So for a lot of people, by the time Vladimir Putin came along and said he was going to fix it, a lot of Russians were like, yeah, please fix it. This is just chaos. And that prepared to that democratic experiment. However, that democratic experiment came through a shift in political perceptions and also a change in leadership with someone like Mikhail Gorbachev coming into power and replacing the old style secretary generals of the Communist Party and seeing that Russia needed more pluralism as well as more economic change in the 1980s. And it's entirely possible that someone else with a different sensibility could replace Vladimir Putin. In fact, when Putin stepped away from the presidency for four years because he'd run out of terms, official constitutional terms, and had to have the constitution amendment while he was away, and he stepped back as prime minister, Dmitry Medvedev, his close associate who stepped in for that four-year period, was a different person. He was a sort of warmer, fuzzier version. Although a lot of Russian policies didn't really change, the style changed. And that made it possible for President Obama at the time to have a reset with Russia and a, certainly a different atmosphere in the relationship. And there was more pluralism in the system. So it's not inconceivable that could happen again. But it will really depend on the larger external context as well. I mean, right now we're in a period of fast demographic, political and economic change again. Globally, we have climate change, we have the pandemic. This isn't the most propitious time, perhaps, for a reformist government to emerge in Russia, but it could in the future. That's encouraging. So the other question I have about Russia is, 
John McCain at one point said something like Russia's basic could be the choice is either engage with Europe or become China's gas station. I'm mangling it slightly. Could you talk a little bit about how do you see some sort of reorientation towards the West? It seems as if they've sort of decided to orient themselves towards China and tie their future to China. I think a lot of it might depend on what China does, because Russia wants a sort of strategic partnership with China far more than China wants one with Russia. I mean, Russia's put a lot of eggs in the China basket, so to speak, at this moment, and that might not be very wise. The future is uncertain. We've seen a lot of posturing about Taiwan. Russia actually sits on a lot of territory that used to belong to China until about the 1860s in a period of Chinese weakness. The territory in the Russian Far East, north of the Amur River, China and the Soviet Union actually tussled over in the late 1960s, early 1970s. Who can say whether that might become cause for Chinese nationalists down the line? If you're kind of gathering in the old Chinese lands, we've seen the Chinese still engage in a border conflict with India in the Himalayas over territory that people are like, why? There's a lot of potential areas where there could be disputes between China and, and Russia, including in the Arctic. Right now, though, Russia wants to avoid at all costs any kind of confrontation with China. And in fact, they want to have the strategic partnership, riding China's coattails, like you were mentioning about being China's gas station, selling raw materials as they're cut off by sanctions to the West, trying to develop their economic relationships to the East. But it hasn't been all that satisfying. But there's a lot of benefit for now in the strategic partnership in the United Nations pushing back against the United States. I think a lot of it will really depend upon China's attitudes. Because, you know, behind the scenes in China, this fairly disparaging attitude toward Russia, the kind of elite levels. Russia is extraordinarily useful as a partner right now for China. So I don't foresee a shift at this particular point. But if China makes some kind of move that makes Russia nervous, and it has done in the past, actually, in 2012-2013, the Chinese sent this transpolar expedition with a nuclear icebreaker, and they went into the Sea of Ahutsk, which the Russians considered to be theirs. And immediately after that, the Russians did some sort of display of force of firing off missiles in the Kamchatka, the peninsula that reaches down into there. And others in the area were very clear, like the Japanese, that this was intended to show the Chinese, hey, hey, don't go too far here. And then after this, the Russians petitioned to the United Nations to declare the Sea of Ahutsk a Russian Sea. And it wasn't because anything the Japan, Japanese or the United States were doing. This was because China had made a foray in. So it just shows that nervousness behind the scenes, but right now a great desire to maintain that strategic partnership on the Russian side. Doctor, this is great. So I loved your book. There is nothing for you here. Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century by Dr. Fiona Hill. What's the message you want people to take away from this book? Well, one of the bigger messages, if we don't pay real attention to fixing our economy and fixing our politics, we're going to be in really steep trouble. I say in the book that modern Russia is a harbinger of the future for the United States, a kind of the ghost of Christmas future. Because well, you know what we saw in Russia was the advent of a strongman and then the perversion of democratization over a period of decades. It was kind of like a slow roll. We're in the same kind of situation here in the United States. Our politics has become so partisan and polarized and fixated on one man, on the presidency. And, you know, with President Trump out there seeking to return to the Oval Office on the back of a lie, we're heading down a similar path to Russia. And I hope that when people have read the book, they might get some ideas about the urgency of doing something to counteract that. Dr. Hill, thanks for making the time. Congratulations on your new book. This is really great. Everyone go out and read it. And thanks for making the time to be with us. Thanks, Dan. That was wonderful. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. 
You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 